Well, last week we looked at building a godly family from Psalm 127. And in summary, it really meant that we needed to include God in our marriages and in our family. That unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord guards it, those who <clears throat> build it on those who watch do so in vain. And it also meant that we need to raise godly offspring uh, that are pleasing to the Lord, uh, knowing that our children are gifts from God uh, to be raised for Him, producing little godly arrows, children who are raised in knowing the Lord and in pleasing how to please the Lord. Now this week and, and probably in the next couple, we will look at how to build uh, a godly church or building a godly church from the book of Titus. Uh, now, for us to understand uh, what, what that means, we first need to understand what godliness is. Uh, godliness, for many, understand that maybe as a, uh, being akin to being like God or having a character, a God-like character or a Christ-like character. Uh, but uh, really, godliness is first and foremost an attitude, an attitude, a, a disposition, a, an, an inner resolve. Uh, it is a devotion to God, a dedication to God. And devotion and dedication, the dictionary tells us, is really a love, a loyalty, a, an enthusiasm, a faithfulness to something, or in our context, to someone being faithful to the Lord. And it is our devotion to God our love for God, our loyalty to Him, our faithfulness to Him that motivates us to act like Christ, to be Christ-like. It is our devotion of God that's the source of our obedience to God, uh, our actions that are pleasing to God. And so godliness is this devotion to God, this dedication, this loyalty, this love for the Lord and that is what separates the godly person from the moral person. That is what separates the godly person from a helpful or a charitable person. It is what separates a godly person from a religious person. I mean, you can be very moral, you can be very generous, you can be very helpful, servant-hearted, and still not be godly. For the source of that motivation or the motivations of your deeds, unless it is a, a love for God, it is something else and therefore is not godly. So godliness is the devotion, the dedication, the, the desire to include God in our lives, to walk with Him in every day and everywhere, and also the desire to, to please Him in every day and in everything. And a good example of a man who was godly was Enoch. Enoch, we are told in Genesis that he walked with God. And in, in Hebrews, that he was pleasing to God. And of course, our supreme example of godliness is Jesus. We know that he walked with the Father every day and that he was well-pleasing to the Father in everything. And so now a person who is devoted to walking with God and devoted to pleasing Him will display godly characteristics, will be Christ-like in character. 
And so godliness is more than Christian character. It's, it is this devotion that produces godly character. Now, what the Lord has laid on my heart in this time of celebrating our ninth birthday as a church is to remind us that we are to build a godly church. We must be part of a godly church. We must be at the business of building godly church or churches, for that matter, as the Lord enables us. And now, Paul wrote this letter to Titus to instructing him to build godly churches. And just for me to, to clarify and to make sure we understand each other, we understand that Jesus Christ is the head of the church and that He said He will build His church and that the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So He is the one building His church. However, we also understand that He builds His church through His means. That is through the proclamation of His Word. That is through the, His people, their prayers. And it is through the working of the Holy Spirit. Christ is the one building His church, but He builds His church through His means. And so likewise, when I say we are to build godly churches, we understand what I mean, that it is Christ who is doing the building, but He does it through the means. He does it through the preaching of his word through his people, that is their prayers, their proclamation, their practices, and also through the Spirit. And so over the next couple of weeks, few weeks, we will look at building a godly church from the instructions that Paul gave Titus. Titus was, was a Greek uh, convert to Christianity, and at the time of this letter, he has been a trustworthy co-worker with Paul for about 20 years, and has proven him to be very helpful and, and, and can be entrusted with difficult and delicate situations. He was sent to the church of Corinth, and we all know how difficult the church Corinth is or was, uh, and now he is entrusting these young churches on the island of Crete to his care. Now, Paul briefly visited the island of Crete during his transportation from Jerusalem to Rome after he appealed to uh, Caesar in his court case. And uh, as he departed from Crete, he left Titus behind to oversee the churches on that island. Now, Crete is one of the largest islands, if not the largest island in the, the Mediterranean Sea. It's about 160 miles long and 35 miles wide. And really, they estimated at that time there were about 20 cities on that island. And the, the task Titus faced was really formidable because Cretan society was very immoral and was immersed in the worship of Greek gods. There were many false teachers, many charlatans, and of course there were the Judaizers who were a real threat to the churches right from the start. Furthermore, this island was very mountainous and there were no really well-established roads to travel on. And so uh, Titus had his work cut out, and, and yet we see that they had this godly ambition to really plant churches in every city, appointing elders in every city. And so Titus was to build up godly churches under the instruction of what Paul gives him 
in this letter. And so we will look at that, uh, how to build godly churches, really to promote godliness from chapter 1, is to instruct or rather pursue godliness in chapter 2, and thirdly, to practice godliness. So let us read chapter 1 of Titus before we, as we're about to jump into this message. Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even His word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders at every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above approach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, good, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things which they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, lazy beasts, lazy, uh, sorry, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, and to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient, worthless for any good deed. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the ministry of your word. Thank you for your spirit who illuminates our minds, who open our hearts, who have tilled the soil of our hearts to receive the life-giving word. I pray, Father, this morning that as uh, your word goes out and falls into our hearts, that it will accomplish the very purpose for which you have sent it. Lord, that you would build up and strengthen those who are in need of strengthening and that you will convict those who are in need of conviction so that they would turn to you, Lord. So, Father, bless us this morning as we seek to build a godly church. In Jesus' name, amen. And really, the first point is that for us to build a, a godly church, we need to have the goal of Godliness. Godliness must be our goal. And really, we find that in our first verse. Uh, the opening verse, we say that godliness of, in God's people was really Paul's goal of ministry or in ministry. Paul was really sold out to God from a very young age. He pursued God as a Pharisee. 
He was religious. But I would not, I dare to say, he was not a godly man. Uh, according to our definition of godliness, at least. He was zealous, but like many in his days, he had a lot of personal ambition and uh, a desire perhaps for prestige that was the motivation for his actions. Of course, I am speculating, uh, but deducting from what he himself said about himself, I don't think I'm far off. Um, but it was only after his conversion on the road of Damascus that Paul became absolutely devoted to God. He became a slave of God. He considered himself crucified, crucified with Christ, as Galatians 2.20 tells us, that he was dead to himself and alive to Christ, that he was crucified to the world and that the world was crucified to him, he said in Galatians 6.14. He considered all of his previous religious achievements as rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ and to be found in Christ, Philippians 3, 8 and 9. And for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. He wanted to, be, to depart and be with Christ, to be with the Lord, because that is by far better. But in service to Christ and for the church, he knew it was better for him to remain in the flesh for the church's sake. Philippians 1, verse 21 to 24. So Paul was truly a slave of God. He was bought and owned by the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And he became an apostle, a messenger, a sent out one by Christ. He was called by Christ on the road of Damascus, we read in Acts 9. He was discipled by Christ in Galatians 1, verse 11 to 12. And he was sent out by Christ, really in Acts 9 and in Acts 30. So he was a sent out one for the faith of the elect of God, for those chosen of God. That is, those who had been foreknew by God, who has been predestined by God, who was called by, or is called by God, justified by God, and glorified by God, according to Romans 8, verse 29 and 30. Those chosen in Christ Jesus from before the foundation of the earth, Ephesians 1.4 tells us, that they may come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. And so the ministry of Paul was to find the elect of God. And how did he do that? He went proclaiming the word of God to every person and calling all of them to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And those who believe they are the elect of God. And so... He was sent out for the faith of the elect of God, but also for the knowledge of the truth. The truth of God is the Word of God. The Word of God is truth because it teaches truthfully the truth of God. That He is our Holy Creator, that He is our Heavenly Father, and that He is a just judge. It teaches truthfully about man. That man is a sinner, that he is condemned, and that he is unclean. And it teaches truthfully about Christ, that he is the Son of God, the Savior of his people, the King of God's kingdom, who gave his life as an atonement for sin for those who would believe. It is this knowledge, this knowledge of the truth, this knowledge of God, this knowledge of Christ, of the gospel, the knowledge of the Word of God, and by believing that, that leads a person to godliness. The preaching and teaching in itself 
is never the end goal. To sit listening to the Word of God, listening, uh, sitting every Sunday under the Word of God, and then do nothing will not produce godliness. It is when we believe the Word of God and live a faithful life. That is what produces godliness. When it is heard, when it is believed, when it is applied, when it is acted upon, that is when it produces in us godliness, that, that deep devotion to God, that, that dedication to Him, that consuming love for the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we want to walk with Him daily, that we want to please Him in all that we do. When Paul wrote to the Colossians that uh, they would grow in the knowledge of the will of the Father, uh, in all spiritual knowledge and understanding. Why? So that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing Him in every respect and bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. Jesus said it uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a similar way. He says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. So the more you know the Lord, the more you will love the Lord. And the more you will love the Lord, the more you will obey the Lord. And the more you will obey the Lord, the more he will make himself known to you so that you love him more, obey him more, and then yet again, love him more. And this was, as Paul says, in the hope of eternal life. It is, it is really pursued based on the certainty that we have eternal life. What is eternal life? That we may know God and Jesus Christ whom He have sent. So when we come to the knowledge of the truth, we have the hope of eternal life. That steadfast, sure, unchanging promise of God. The God of truth. The God who cannot lie. He made this promise in ages past. But has made this truth known at a proper time. At the time of His choosing. According to His plans and His purposes. And Paul was made a minister, a steward of that revelation of God, the truth of God, the mysteries of God, as he calls it. And this is the one, this is Paul, who is now instructing Titus, his true child in the common faith. He came to faith under the ministry of Paul and is fully aligned with the teaching of the faith, that is the teaching of the common faith, really that what every Christian must believe in order to be a Christian, to be saved. And so, for us to build godly churches, we must believe the knowledge of the truth that leads to, gospel, to godliness. Paul goes on and says to Timothy, grace, to Titus, grace and peace to you from the Father and our Lord Jesus, the Savior. Why? Because he will need it. Without Christ building the house, without Christ guarding the city, the watchman build in, builds in vain and, sorry, the, the builders build in vain and the watchman watch in vain. 
And so how do we build a godly church or other godly churches? Well, the way Paul did, by preaching the Word of God, by teaching the Word of God, by explaining the Word of truth, by exhorting faith and belief in the Word of truth, and do this faithfully, do this steadfastly, do so that it would lead to godliness, that it will produce godliness in God's people, that deep devotion, that steadfast dedication, that consuming love to walk with God and please Him. And of course, we know that this was first done by Jesus to, with His disciples. Then His disciples, who turned apostles, taught others, like Titus and Timothy and Barnabas, who in turn entrusted that word of faith to others, and those who mature in godliness and are able to teach others the word of truth, leading them to godliness, they are recognized as elders in the church. Elders are really the Lord's guides to godliness, leading God's people to godliness through the exhortation of the word and the example of their life. And so, brings us to verses 5 to 9, the guides to godliness. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, that if a man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must not be above or must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. And so Titus was, were to remain in Crete and to set in order what remains, uh, really to and appoint elders in every city. Titus had to set things straight. He had to teach, rebuke, correct, and train in righteousness. He had to fix and repair. He had to build up what was weak. He had to guard against threats. And he had to appoint elders in every city, pointing really to an ambitious strategy of church planting, evangelizing the whole island with raising up godly churches, healthy churches, overflowing and planting more godly, healthy churches. And so to help him do that, he had to appoint elders in every city, faithful men who measure up to God's standards and God's expectations. Now, the term elder is, is common in the Bible. It is always used in the plural in the New Testament in the context of speaking to leaders in the church. However, we are never given a specific number in the New Testament. Instead, the focus is on the character of an elder, the qualification of an elder, not on the number of elders. And so Titus had to set things in order. He had to mend what was broken, and it started by making sure godly leaders were in place to lead God's people to godliness. And godly elders are men whose devotion to the Lord 
has really impacted and infiltrated every aspect and every part of their lives. And so first we see there are really three areas in which an elder needs to be above reproach, blameless. He needs to be blameless as a steward of his own house. He needs to be blameless as a steward of God's household. And he needs to be blameless in the handling of God's word. And really verse 6 gives us this overarching qualification of an elder that he must be above reproach. That means he must be blameless. His integrity and character must be above accusation or question. And this is very important because Paul repeats it in verse 7. And so this forms the standard really of all other qualifications. That in all other qualifications, there needs to be above reproach, blameless. And so first we see that a godly elder must be above reproach, blameless in his commitment at home. He must be faithful to his wife, a a one-woman man, one who loves, one who is devoted, one who is committed to one woman, that is his wife, for all of his life. He must not be guilty of adultery, he must not be guilty of lust, of flirting with other women, or addicted to pornography. He must be faithful to his wife. Furthermore, he must be blameless as a father, above reproach as a father. He must be a faithful father, having children who believes, not accused of wild or rebellious behavior. Now, the meaning of that is, is, a, is debated. Um, having children who be, uh, being faithful or well-behaved, or it could mean having children who are actually believers. And so, being above reproach, being blameless as a father, most definitely means you have to have well-behaved children. But it also comes with an expectation that his children would be believers, that he had faithfully raised them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, and under God's sovereignty, they have come to faith in Christ. Being blameless over one's own home is a requirement to be a godly elder. Timothy, 1 Timothy 3 tells us he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And so it's, that's almost the first area of uh, Training ground, so to speak, to be an elder, a godly elder, is to be someone who manages his own household well. Secondly, he needs to be blameless as a steward of God's household. He must be, it calls here an overseer. This is is a term that can be interchangeably with elder, perhaps with a little bit more emphasis on the responsibility of leading or managing God's people, he must be blameless as a steward, as a manager, as an overseer of God's household. And it says he must be 
above reproach. This is not negotiable. It is essential. An overseer, as a steward of God's household, must therefore walk worthy of his master, pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work as he undertakes in the interest of his master. He must remember that he represents his master, that he serves his master, and therefore he must be blameless. Being an overseer comes with an awesome responsibility and accountability to God. And godly overseer serves his master, receives his instructions, his duties, his priorities from the Lord, and therefore must have his interests at heart first and foremost. And this, of course, is reflected in the man's character and its conduct. And in verse 7, we really, Paul mentions a list of negative characteristics. That which must be part of a godly elder, his conduct and his character. And just let me just stop there for a moment. This, these, of course, characteristics are true and are required of every Christian. This is not just for the elders. This is for every Christian. But elders are those who are blameless in these qualities, on these characteristics. And so first of all, we see there's a list of negative characteristics. He must not be self-willed. Because he serves his master, and he must conduct himself according to the master's will. He cannot be self-willed, he cannot be self-centered, he cannot be motivated by self-interest. He is not to please himself. He is not to be arrogant and prideful, seeking to please himself while God's will and the needs of his people are neglected. He must not only look out for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Philippians tells us, considering others as more important than himself. Philippians 2, verse 3 and 4. He must have the attitude of Christ during his incarnation, who submitted to the will of the Father, looking out for the interest of others, serving others, sacrificing himself for the sake of God's people. A godly elder must not be self-willed. Nor must he be quick-tempered or have a short fuse. He must be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. He must reflect the meek and gentle spirit of his master Jesus, as 2 Corinthians 10 tells us. One commentator said, A quick-tempered man lose no time in being angry with those they ought not to, over things they ought not to, and far more than they ought to. And so uh, an elder must not be quick-tempered. He must not be a drunkard or be known as a drinker who constantly have a drink nearby. He must not be filled with wine, which will cloud his judgment, but be filled really with the Spirit, as Ephesians 5.18 tells us. To be under the influence of the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, rather than succumbing to mind-altering substances. 
Furthermore, it must, be, it must not be pugnacious. Literally, it must not be a fighter, one who strikes another, one who is a violent person. And figuratively, it became known as not to be a reviler, really one who is contentious or a quarreler. So to be not pugnacious means someone who does not physically or verbally abuse other people, hurting other people. Second Timothy 2.24 says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach Patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God would grant them repentance, leading, uh, and, and, uh, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. The last negative characteristic, he must not be a greedy man, not fond of sordid gain. Not a person greedy for money or possessions to the point of compromising his moral standards, but be, must be a, one who is content with what he has. First Timothy 6 tells us that, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith, piercing themselves with many griefs. And so an elder must be above reproach in his characteristics in this regard. Then Paul goes on in verse 8 and lists a number of positive characteristics, that which an elder must be to be godly. And so a godly elder must be hospitable. An elder must be welcoming, generous, and who readily takes people into his home. Why? Because hospitality is really an expression of love. It is being kind to others. The word literally means to be a lover of strangers. That is not of your own family. That is with strangers. And so the need for hospitality really in those days was, was quite great because inns were notoriously expensive, dirty, and immoral places. And, and even today... In Christian hospitality shown to a visitor, to, to a stranger, to a brother and sister in the church really reflects the love of the church, the welcoming nature of a church. And, and the godly elder must lead the way. Next, the godly elder must love what is good. Really closely related to hospitality, the love of, for strangers, this is the love for doing good. For the things that God defines as good, that which is true and honorable, right and pure, lovely and of good repute, what is excellent and worthy of praise, as Philippians 4.8 tells us. The godly elder must love what is good. And he must be sensible. He must be one of sound mind, of sound judgment, who is prudent, who is thoughtful and considerate who is careful and responsible 
who makes good decisions. One whose thinking is guided and directed by the knowledge of the truth, the Word of God. He needs to think biblically. The sensible, the prudent, seeks out knowledge, then acts according to knowledge. Seeks, sees evil and, and, and hides from it, avoids it. This, a good example of the sensible are the five virgins who prepared, who considered while they await the arrival of the bridegroom. And God's steward must be sensible, prudent. And he must be just. That is, he must be morally and ethically righteous. Walking with the Lord in an upright manner. Being honest in his dealings with others. Fair and equitable. He must be blameless, pleasing his master in how he treats others and how he lives before others. Really, David gives us in Psalm 15... An illustration, an example, or a description of one who may minister in the tent of the Lord, who may abide in his presence. And it says then, Psalm 15, that he is the one who walks with integrity, who works righteousness, who speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander and does no evil to his neighbor. And he goes on in that psalm. And that is what a godly elder must be, a godly steward, an overseer, a steward of God's household. And he must be devout. Really, it means to be pure, to be holy, to be unpolluted. The one who is devout or holy lives a life that reflects Jesus, who walks with Christ, who abides in Christ who is conscious of the fact that he is in Christ and Christ is in him, and who is sensitive to sin, eager to repent, vigorous to change. He is the one who is set on being holy, like the Holy One who called him, as 1 Peter 1.15 reminds us. And he must be self-controlled, a disciplined man, a godly elder is the one who has control over himself, over his passions and over his impulses. He is a man who can lead himself, one who looks in the mirror of God's Word and does not forget what he sees, but goes and applies the Word of God to his life and do what the words say. He is a self-controlled man. A man who is mastered by the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And is able to lead himself in a way that pleases his master. Now all of these, as I said, requirements are not only for elders. They are for every Christian. They are the characteristics of a godly Christian. However, as I said, elders and the guides to godliness must be examples in this. They must be blameless in this. They must be above reproach in these. And so when it comes to godly, building godly churches, godly elders are essential to guide others, 
through their example and through their teaching. And so they must be blameless in the stewards, in being a steward of God's word. It says they're holding fast, verse 9, the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So first and foremost, he has to hold fast, or he must hold fast, the faithful word. That is which is in accordance to the teaching. The faithful word, the word of God, which really came to us from the apostles. The apostles are the ones who laid the foundation with Christ being the cornerstone, Ephesians 2.20. And it's the faith that has been handed down once for all to the saints, according to Jude 3. And it is the truth that leads to godliness. And so a godly elder is one who is faithful to the Word of God, devoted to it, consumed by it. The man who has set his heart to study it, to submit to it, and to teach it to others, as Ezra did in Ezra 7.10. He is a man who is a diligent workman of God, who is approved of God, and, not a, and does not need to be ashamed because he accurately, rightly handles the Word of God. 2 Timothy 2.15, knowing that really those who take the position of a, t- a teacher will incur a stricter judgment from God. Because you are not only responsible for what you know and do, but also for what you teach to others. And so he is one who is devoted to the Word of God and would never exchange the truth of God for human wisdom. He would never stand up in front of a congregation, and preach anything other than the Word of God. He would never favor his own wisdom, his own insights, human wisdoms above the Word of God in his preaching and in his counseling. He's a man who affirms the authority of God's Word the priority of God's Word, the veracity of God's Word, and the sufficiency of God's Word. Sufficient for life and godliness, 2 Peter 1.3, and for saving sinners and sanctifying saints, 2 Timothy 3.15-17. And so he must be a man of the Word. He must be a minister of the Word. He must be a slave to the Word. He must be constrained by the Word. And he must be one who will be willing to preach the Word of God in season and out of season. He will reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instructions, even when nobody wants to hear. Such a man will be able and will be committed and will be diligent to teach sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, teaching the Word of God that leads to godliness. Such a man will be able to exhort, able to encourage, able to urge the people of God to the adherence of the Word of God. He will summons the people of God to compliance to the Word of God, to the compliance of sound doctrine. And 
he will therefore also be able to refute those who contradict him. He will constrain, he will compel by the weight of his stewardship to speak against those who disobey, those who disagree, those who are deceived by false teaching. The godly elder must always be ready and willing to encourage and to expose, to comfort and to confront, comforting with the truth and confronting the lie, the deceptive, the false. And he must be above reproach, blameless in handling the Word of God, in preaching it, in teaching it. Why? So that it will produce godliness in God's people. So in building a godly church, the goal is godliness in its members and to be led by godly overseers who can guide God's people to godliness through their lives, the example of their lives, and through the teaching, really teaching the words of Jesus Christ and the doctrines conforming to godliness, as Paul wrote in Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.3. And thirdly, for us to be a godly church, we need to guard against the ungodly. And Paul really gives Titus here in verses 10 to 16 the reason why it is so important to have godly elders living godly lives, teaching the truth of God, because there are really many spiritual criminals, those who are stealing the truth presenting half-truths, misleading and deceiving people, those who are robbing people of salvation and a life of godliness. They are spiritual fraudsters. They are really spiritual murderers, mixing poisonous drops of false teaching with the word of truth, spiking the message of truth and killing those who drink from their cup. And really the New Testament is replete with warnings against false teachers and false teaching. Jesus warned us against the woolly wolves, those who dress like sheep but are ravenous wolves, who will abuse the flock for personal gain. Matthew 7, 15. Paul warned against those who will rise up even from within the church that will lead people away from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Those who disguise themselves as workers of righteousness while they are children of the devil who himself disguise him as an angel of light. And he warned against difficult times that some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits. 1 Timothy 4, 1-3. When people will be lovers of self, of money, arrogant, prideful, disobedient, ungrateful, unholy, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, 
and those who hold to a form of godliness but deny its power. 2 Timothy 3, verse 1 to 5. And Peter warned against false prophets arising among the people, false teachers secretly introducing destructive heresies, denying even the master. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth is maligned. That means salvation and godliness will be poisoned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with their false words. 2 Peter 2, 1-3. John urged us not to believe every spirit, but to test the spirits, to see if they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Jude warns against the ungodly, those who turn the grace of God into licentiousness. Denying Jesus Christ, our Master and our Lord. And verse 18 and 19, he says, In the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. And that is what Titus faced in Crete. And that is what the churches throughout the ages have faced. And that is what we today face. And there is a need for Godly people and for godly leaders who live godly lives that are sound in doctrine. And so this little preposition that Paul uses here at the first word of verse 10, 4, that is why we need godly elders and leaders. Because the false is so smooth and so persuasive and so crafty and so convincing and easily misleading and deceiving those who are immature and those who are gullible. And Paul wrote in the Ephesians that one of the main tasks of a pastor teacher, among others, are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Why? To build up the body of Christ to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God so as to mature and no longer be tossed about like children here and there by the waves and winds of false doctrine taught by false men with trickery, craftiness, and deceitful scheming. Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 14. And so to build against, or to build rather, a godly church, we need to guard against the ungodly. Guard against the guile of the ungodly. We need to guard against deception, their deception. Verse 10 and 11. Deceivers are those who teach false doctrines. Why? Because they are rebellious at heart. They refuse to submit to the authority of God's Word and those who teach it. They set themselves up as an authority in their own right and claim that they have the truth and that they teach the truth. And really the most dangerous thing about a deceiver is that He is deceived himself. He actually thinks that what he is doing is right and true. And so they speak empty words. 
words that lack authority, words that lack power, because the Word of God comes with authority and power. And since they do not have that, their words are empty and unable to accomplish anything of spiritual benefit for those who are deceived. And there were many different religions practiced on Crete, but Paul singles out specifically the circumcision. Those who deceive the people of God, insisting on faith in Christ and adherence to the law of Moses for them to grow in godliness. Verse 14 describes them as those who are preaching really Jewish myths and the commandments of men, turning people away from the truth. And so they subtly seduce people back into a life of spiritual achievement, spiritual accomplishment, really spiritual pride, moving them away from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. They promise with their teaching that they will bring you closer to Christ. But ultimately, they lead you away from Christ to build a righteousness that is your own, an acceptance that you have achieved, a, a, a sanctification that is yours, that you can be proud of. And to build a godly church, we need to guard against that deception. We need to guard against their division. The danger of deceivers is that they lure people away to follow after them, they persuade others to believe what they believe. And suddenly you have two groups in the church. Two groups in the house. Opposing one another. Disrupting. And to build a godly church... Unity is critical. It is essential. For without unity in the church, it will fall. And Satan, the father of lies and the master deceiver, will get his way if we do not oppose it. If we do not guard against it. If we do not do whatever we must to prevent that. And so we need to guard against their deception, we need to guard against their division, and we need to guard against their deeds. Their deeds are seductive. And Jesus taught that you will know the false teachers by their deeds, by their fruit. And here in verse 11, Paul writes that ultimately... Those who deceive, those who are rebellious, are ultimately motivated by what they can gain through it. Whether that is money, prestige, position. And there could be many reasons why they are motivated to deceive. Verse 12 says, One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. And people, what you believe, what you hold as true, will ultimately manifest itself in your life. 
John MacArthur said that truth and time goes hand in hand, and in time truth always comes out. The truth of what you believe is manifested in what you do, what you believe, what you hold fast, what you are faithful to. And if that is not the knowledge of the truth, then it will not be godliness. But believing the false, being deceived leads to ungodly behavior. The Cretans here said they are liars. They had become known for lying, for telling half-truths, exaggeration, withholding truth, distorting truth. They are evil beasts. People, beasts do not live by morals. They just do what is instinctive to their nature. And so to be described an evil beast is a horrible insight, meaning that your actions are evil because you are just functioning on the basis of your needs. If you want something, you take it, is the idea. They are lazy gluttons, undisciplined, self-indulgent. And Paul writes to Timothy, he says, Resist them. Reprove them severely, sharply, harshly. For their deeds will have a terrible influence on the church. And that is why, why we have church discipline. For someone who is unrepentant in their sin... And for the sake of the purity of the church, we need to put them out the church. So reprove them severely. Why? So that they will repent and return to sound faith, return to the sound knowledge of the truth, return to a life of godliness. And those who are influenced by deception and fail to respond to severe admonishment, they need to be put out of the church because they have become defiled. They are impure. Verse 15 says, To the pure, that is for those who are basically who, who are unpolluted in their devotion to the Lord, unpolluted by deception. For them all things are pure. That means they have the right perspective on everything. They have God's perspective. And for those who are defiled, those who are impure, those who are no longer wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord, wholeheartedly adhering to sound doctrine, those who do no longer believe the truth, the doctrine that leads to godliness, to them nothing is pure. They have become Defiled. Defiled in mind, meaning they don't think in accordance with God's word anymore. They are no longer governed by God's will. They are no longer interested in pleasing the Lord. And defiled in conscience. And since they no longer hold to the word of truth, to sound doctrine, but have believed a lie, a deception, a false doctrine, their consciences are no longer informed by God and His Word, but
but by another authority, the authority of their own choosing, which will allow them to do deeds which are contrary to God's will, and they will no longer feel guilt about it because their conscience have been defiled, has been misinformed. And ultimately, verse 16, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. They become ungodly. So people, for us to build a godly church, we must make godliness our goal, our personal goal, and the goal for our congregation. We must have godly elders, leaders, guides to godliness, who guides us by their example and by their teaching. And we must guard against the ungodly, their deception, their division, and their defilement. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, Lord, you are the Lord of your church. You have sent Christ, who is the head of the church. In him we have all that we need. And yet, Lord, you, because you, since you have saved us, you have not taken us to be with you. You have left us here for your purposes, to be your servants, to be your ambassadors. And Lord, you require of us to be good stewards of what you have entrusted to us, the word of God, the word of truth, the gospel. And so, Lord, as a church, as a congregation, as a people, we desire godliness. Lord, I pray that as every time we open your word, every time we read, every time we pray, we will know you more. And Lord, that we would love you more. And that we would obey you more. And then, Lord, you will reveal more of yourself to us. Oh, Lord, help us that our devotion to you would make us walk with you, abide in you, and will constrain our behavior, our actions, influence our character, so that we would be pleasing to you. And this we ask in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.